Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we're asking questions about British appeasement prior to the Second World War. It's gone down in history as a naive and disastrous policy, but given the ultimate result, victory for the Allies, was it really the right decision to appease Hitler in order to buy time and rearm? If it wasn't the right decision, then why did Chamberlain and Halifax not take action earlier, when the Rhineland was occupied, or during Anschluss in 1938, or perhaps with the occupation of the Sudetenland? Well, to find out, History Hits, Tim Bouverie explores these old questions to find new answers about appeasement. Tim, what do you feel you could add to this debate about appeasement and why Britain went to war in 1939? Well, I didn't start off with any sort of major theory that I was trying to change the debate beforehand. But I thought that we all think that we know this period incredibly well. And a lot of people ask me, why are you writing this book? Surely lots have been done. But if you ever challenged anyone to say, can you name a book which looks at the entire period from 1933 right through to 1940 from a diplomatic and political perspective that's been written in the last 30 years. Nobody actually was ever able to give me an answer, whereas we can all name hundreds of books which have been written on the actual war itself. There have been very good books on just Chamberlain or Churchill, but nothing on the whole thing. It, it began, though, more modestly. I came across an entry in Harold Nicholson's diaries where he said in May 1938, he came across three young peers in Pratt's club who said that they would rather see Hitler in London than have a Labour government. And I thought this was so shocking. I wanted to try and explore how widespread support was among the British ruling elite for the Third Reich and for the aims of the Hitler government. In the, at the beginning of the 1930s, you're, in, I get a strong sense in your book that the British and French did not want to fight another war. Now, why? That actually seems like a fairly, that's a reasonable point of view. Completely reasonable. It's only 20 years since the war to end all wars. And the idea of fighting another one to against the same enemy was unconscionable. And I think particularly in Britain, among the elite, there was a great sense of surprise that they had survived the First World War, that these great homes that the 
aristocratic system, capitalism, there hadn't been a revolution as there had been in Russia. And they didn't think that they would survive another war. And in some ways, although there wasn't a violent revolution, they didn't. The Attlee government, the creation of the welfare state, Britain was never the same again after the huge exertions of the Second World War. Well, that's a good point, because that's where your your amazing quote from King George V, who said during the Abyssinia crisis, I think, he would personally wave the red flag and stop Britain going to war. Yeah, I, I, he, he was less motivated by a fear of revolution than just of horror that an elderly generation who had experienced the First World War, they couldn't believe that they were going to have to deal with the same thing again. It wasn't, though, a particularly apt analogy, I don't think, in the Abyssinian crisis. If you look at what the uh, Royal Navy was saying at the time, the ability to deter the Italians by blocking the Suez Canal or simply beating them, as we did fairly convincingly once the Second World War began, was was obvious. So it wouldn't have... An attempt to stop Italy invading Abyssinia in 1935-1936, I don't think, would have led to Somme-type battles or a major European carnage. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to ask you, we're going to rampage all the way through appeasement. Hitler's government gets into power. What are its ambitions and how are those met in the West? Well, the Hitler government is underestimated in the West as it's underestimated in Germany because governments have only lasted about a year. There are six million people unemployed. And this figure of Hitler seems faintly ludicrous to a seasoned statesman in the West with his uh, marches and uh, Charlie Chaplin moustache. He also continually stresses that he is a pacifist. He uses the word pacifist and says that he has no desire to even break up the Treaty of Locarno, which had uh, guaranteed Germany's western borders. He he says he has no quarrel with France. He is prepared to sign non-aggression pacts, which he does do later on with Poland and other countries. So Although there are, is a strong section of opinion in Britain and France, although a minority that says this man can't be trusted and the foreign policy aims of the Hitler government, which are clear from Mein Kampf and clear from other things going on in Germany, are a great danger to us. The idea of war is so unpalatable that I think people were prepared to take him at his word because the alternatives were too awful to face. And there's just a series of tests, aren't there? Let's sort of run through. There's a series, we've all done it in GCSE history, but there's a series of kind of moments at which it just feels like we're on an escalator towards conflict. And what are some of those first ones? Well, the first ones are when Hitler begins to rearm and it's fairly clear that he's breaking the Treaty of Versailles. He's creating an air force which is prescribed. He's talking about the need for a larger German navy. And then in March uh, 1935, he announces the introduction of conscription. And the Treaty of Versailles had said that you could only have an army of 100,000 men in Germany. There are two reasons none of these things get challenged. And I think it's important that we remember that contemporaries didn't know that they were on an escalator. They didn't know that this uh, this demand would be succeeded by the next demand, succeeded by the next demand. Firstly, because they thought that Hitler just did want equality of status among the Western powers. And there was a huge sense, both in Britain and France, that the Treaty of Versailles had been too harsh and had created the Nazis. And if the Treaty of Versailles had been more lenient, then this sense of grievance wouldn't have arisen and the Weimar Republic might have survived. And if only Hitler were given that equality of status he demanded with the other great powers, Germany's a great country after all, then he might calm down and Europe could have that time of appeasement. Appeasement was not a dirty word then. It was used as a a perfectly acceptable aim. And it is, it was always a perfectly acceptable aim. The criticisms of how the policy was 
whether it was going to work rather than not being a good aim. The other reason these tests aren't met is there's no appetite whatsoever for the only way of stopping them, which would have been a preventive war. Nobody was going to go march into Germany to stop her having 500,000 man army rather than a 100,000 or even an air force. Is, is Hitler working to a plan here or is it just a velociraptor testing the wire? Well, I, I, there are two schools of thought on this. One is that he's he's always got this master plan and it's step by step by step. And then there's a, the sort of AJP Taylor view, which was that he's an opportunist and that e- each thing is very much decided on the spur of the moment. And I think the truth lies roughly between those those two, as so often happens. He's set out his ideas and his aims in Mein Kampf fairly consistently. And those people that really understood what the Hitler government was about had read Mein Kampf, but tons of people hadn't. So I find it absolutely astonishing that the major figure that was threatening world peace, he'd only produced one book. You would have thought they could have all read that one book, but they didn't. And the aims of restoring Germany's territorial integrity, regaining lost colonies, creating Lebensraum in Eastern Europe, defeating France, all of these are the consistent aims he has throughout the 30s. The only thing that changes, I think, is he initially desires an alliance with Great Britain, who he hugely admires, particularly for our empire. But by about 1937, he's realized that this can't happen. And he tells his generals that we must count Great Britain among our most implacable enemies. But then as to his program of when these tests are going to be made, I think that is much more opportunistic. He, he doesn't plan the Ashless in March 1938, I will have taken over Austria. It happens in quite an ad hoc way after the uh, Austrian Chancellor has called a plebiscite uh, to try and um, outmaneuver Hitler. So there, there is definitely opportunism. Does Western opposition to Hitler sort of harden in direct proportion to the various actions that he takes? Or is there a transformative moment when people in France and Britain realise that this is an existential threat? I think it's gradual, but then there are key moments. Interestingly, some of the biggest moments that we see in hindsight, and some contemporaries saw at the time, did the reverse. They enhanced support and admiration for Nazi Germany. That we all, I think most historians now agree that the reoccupation of the Rhineland was the last chance of stopping a major war, which the British and the French had. But the British had no desire to chuck the Germans out of their own territory or go to war over that. And support for the Third Reich massively increased in it was the high watermark of support for Nazi Germany in this country was 1936 in the aftermath of the Rhineland, which is quite strange. I mean, there were reasons for it, but uh, it, it's still nevertheless a strange thought. The decisive moment, though, is the uh, rejection and violation of the Munich Agreement in March 1939, when Hitler, beyond any doubt, proves that he is an untrustworthy man who is not merely seeking to incorporate Germans into his Reich. He is after territorial aggrandizement on a Napoleonic scale, something which Churchill and others had been claiming. And that, that is, I think, the, the watershed moment. Right. So let's go back. So you've got the reoccupation of the Rhineland. Rhineland was a piece of Germany, but it w- w- was not allowed. The German government was not allowed to place military units or assets there because it was near to the border with France. And when, when does Hitler decide to ignore that? Hitler marches into the Rhineland in March 1936. And as you say, it's it's been kept open. The French wanted to 
occupy it themselves, uh, but they weren't allowed to by the British and the Americans at Versailles. But it's kept demilitarized because it's essentially the front door to Germany. This is the route through which the French army would march if they wanted a preventive war. It was their safety mechanism for removing a German government or reoccupying Germany should a great threat ever appear. But they show no real willingness in the 30s to ever use it. And then in 1936, when Hitler moves into the Rhineland, the French show no willingness at all to eject the very, very small number of German troops that have occupied it and are under orders to resist. But then it would only have been a very token resistance before a major retreat. The French army, by about 100 times, outnumbered the German army at that time. And Hitler's generals were profoundly nervous. His Hitler's generals told him not to do it. Hitler was profoundly nervous and said later on, possibly boasting because it showed his his nerves of steel, that it was the most nervous 48 hours of his life. And it would have dealt a huge blow to his prestige within Germany had he been ejected from this. And it would have increased dissatisfaction among his generals. Whereas after this, the generals and the far more cautious military are at a disadvantage when they're trying to restrain Hitler from other outlandish acts of uh, foreign policy. So when does he launch his next coup? The next coup is the Anschluss with Austria, which occurs in March 1938. And once that has happened, once it's underway, there's very little that the British or French could do about it. But what they could have done is made it clear or try to at least deter Hitler. Instead, the British completely undermine or one man or two men, Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax, completely undermine the official policy, foreign policy of Great Britain as set out by the Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden and by the Foreign Office, which is that Austrian integrity must be respected and as must Czechoslovak integrity be respected. Instead, Halifax visits Hitler at Berchtesgaden in November 1937 and says that the British have no problem with uh, him incorporating Austrians or Czechoslovaks into the Reich providing it's done peacefully. And why did, why Chamberlain and Halifax? What is it about their politics that puts them in opposition to the official British foreign policy as espoused by the Foreign Office? Is it is it just wariness? Is it actually thinking, well, it's, you, can, you can choose between Stalin and Hitler, I'd rather have Hitler. What's going on with them? I think a lot of people would say, as, as the saying went at the time, better Hitler than Stalin at the Channel ports. I don't think that's quite as important for Chamberlain and Halifax. So neither Chamberlain nor Halifax fought in the First World War. Chamberlain was too old and Halifax didn't see frontline action. And I think they are naturally quite pacific characters. But fundamentally, they disagree with the analysis of Churchill and Van Sittart that Hitler is a man intent upon European hegemony. They think that his intentions are limited and that if only they could get to some sort of readjustment of the European status quo, then there is no reason to have another war. And On the face of it, the issues of Austria or Czechoslovakia are not issues on which Britain would normally think of going to war. These are not, we're a maritime or were a maritime and imperial power. Eastern Europe, Central Europe, those are not British concerns. What Churchill and others point out is it's not about the rights or wrongs of three million Sudeten Germans being incorporated into the Reich or the Anschluss. It's about one power dominating the continent. And British foreign policy, they see it, being better versed in history, importantly, is has always been to oppose one power dominating the continent. That's why we opposed Louis XIV in the 17th century, why we opposed Napoleon in the 18th and 19th centuries, why we opposed the Kaiserreich in the 20th century, and why we eventually opposed the Third Reich. It wasn't over the rights or wrongs of self-determination for 
some fringe population. So let's talk about another fringe population now. When does Hitler, after the successful incorporation of Austria into the Third Reich, what does he do next? Who else does he eye up for inclusion in his empire? Everyone realises once Austria has been taken over that Czechoslovakia is going to be his next item that he, he wishes to consume. And the reasons for this are fairly obvious. The All the fortifications defending Czechoslovakia are on the west. And by the absorption of Austria, he it has turned the Czech's defences. He could now attack them from the south where they're very poorly defended. And there is this minority, this three and a quarter million of ethnic Germans who had actually had never been part of modern day Germany. They were never part of Bismarck's Reich. They were part of the Habsburg Empire. And they have been razzled up by a sort of faux Nazi party to demand inclusion into the Reich. And Hitler wants to include these people because they are he is the ultimate pan-German nationalist, and he wants to include all Germans within the Reich. But he also wants to take over the whole of Czechoslovakia. It's a very rich country. It's got the world's largest munitions site at Skoda. And if your aim is ultimately to conquer living space, Lebensraum, in Eastern Europe and Russia, then Czechoslovakia has to be dealt with first. So it is both a strategic and it's an ideological obvious next step. And again, Chamberlain and Halifax are prepared to countenance this next step, are they? Chamberlain and Halifax continue to believe that a peaceful solution can be found. Hitler is very careful at every stage of whatever he's demanding, from the Rhineland to larger army to Czechoslovakia or Poland, he always makes it seem like his demand is very reasonable. His language and the way he delivers it in rants and raves and threats of war is unreasonable, but he always says it's only a specific thing. And it, each time he always says that this is his last demand. The fact that nobody had realised that he'd continually broken his word by 1938 is fairly shocking, or the fact that Chamberlain and Halifax hadn't woken up to the fact that this was a serial liar is pretty shocking. But they think that a solution could be found, and there is a way of incorporating the Sudeten Germans into Germany peacefully, which ultimately happens. But they have not realised what others have realised, that Hitler isn't going to stop there. He wants the whole of Czechoslovakia and he breaks the agreement within five months of it being made. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So let's go through the chronology. When did Chamberlain Halifax agree to Hitler's demands that he can take the Sudetenland? land? Chamberlain Halifax don't agree at all that he should be allowed to take the Sudetenland. They think that there could be some form of plebiscite, uh, referendums. uh, You'll be shocked to hear were extremely popular devices for demagogues in these days and often used to get unpopular measures through. They also think that there could be some sort of accommodation. Hitler, until almost the middle of the Czech crisis in September 1938, is not demanding their absorption into the Reich. He is saying that they must have self-government, that there must be full equality for the situation within the Czech state. And they, they sort of already have that. They, even though they are not the majority population and feel slightly humiliated having been in the ascendancy when the Austro-Hungarian Empire existed, the Sudetian Germans enjoy civil and religious liberties such as could only be dreamt of in Nazi Germany. So it's it's incredibly hypocritical claim. This, however, as the crisis develops and more and more intelligence of uh, German forces building up along the Czech border floods into the Foreign Office and the Quai d'Orsay, it becomes clear that Hitler is not going to just wait and allow uh, some form of self-government for the Sudetans. He actually wants to annex the territory. And at one stage, it's the Times newspaper, which says at the height of it that this should be allowed to happen. If that's what's going to stop war, then they, the Sudetans should just join with Germany. And this is a really shocking thing. Nowadays, most people don't read newspaper leaders, at least of all the Times. But then the Times was so closely linked to the British government that it was viewed across the world as a declaration of government policy. And cables were going across almost every single foreign capital saying, well, the British have changed their mind. The British are prepared to accept annexation, which privately Lord Halifax, who was best friends with the Times editor Geoffrey Dawson, had agreed to, but was still not official British policy. God, times have changed. So Hitler moves into the Sudetenland. Hitler moves into the Sudetenland following the Munich Agreement. There is a there is a hiatus. I mean, the most famous and uh, iconic moments of the appeasement story are Chamberlain's three flying visits to Hitler. At the first one, where they meet in Berchtesgaden, Chamberlain agrees that the Sudetens should be allowed to join with the Reich should they wish to, and he suggests that there should be a plebiscite referendum, whatever. He then returns to Britain and persuades the French, who are formally allied with the Czechs to abandon them, that they, they must give in the Sudetenland. And the French do this. They, they pretend to be highly affronted to be asked to abandon their ally, but privately they've already decided that they can't fight for them anyway, but they just want to pin the blame on the British. Chamberlain, very pleased with himself, a week later returns to Germany, and this time he meets Hitler on the banks of the Rhine at Bad Godsberg. This is in around 20th uh, to 24th of September 1938. And he says, isn't it marvellous? I've got you exactly what you want. The, the French have agreed to abandon the Czechs, and both the British and the French have told the Czechs that if you don't surrender this territory, then we will abandon you and you will uh, have your most assured destruction. 
And Hitler, because he actually wants a little war and wants to keep upping the ante, says, that's that's great, but I'm afraid it's not good enough. It's got to happen much faster than you're saying. And we have to consider other minorities like Polish minority, a Hungarian minority. At that point, Chamberlain is still prepared to give in to Hitler's demands, even though it's very clear Hitler has no interest in a peaceful solution. But the British cabinet, led by Halifax, most interesting Halifax at this crucial moment, becomes a resistor, not an appeaser. At this point, the British cabinet revolts and rejects Hitler's terms. And for one brief week, it looks as if we are going to go to war over Czechoslovakia. People dig trenches in Hyde Park. They're trying on gas masks. Territorial army is being called up. The Royal Navy is being mobilized. At the absolute last moment, when Chamberlain is in the midst of a speech in the House of Commons, talking about the preparation of war, the telephone in the Foreign Office rings, and it is Hitler, or not in person, it is uh, the British ambassador in Germany saying that Hitler is inviting the great powers, Britain, France, Italy, and Germany, for a conference at Munich to find a peaceful solution. And that leads to the Munich Agreement, which which is sort of actually far less exciting than the previous summits. By the time the British and French prime ministers board their aeroplanes, it's a done deal. The, the Sudetenland is going to be surrendered. And it's a sort of face-saving exercise. Hitler's decided against war. They've decided to give in. It's, it's just a, a, an agreement. So Hitler moves into the Sudetenland, but he doesn't stop there. No, he doesn't. And it's important also to realise that dissatisfaction with the Munich Agreement began a long time before he invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. There's huge euphoria after the Munich Agreement, but that's relief. And within a couple of weeks, most people in Britain are beginning to realise that the only way that war was avoided was giving in to this bully's demands and that they're probably not going to be his last demands. And then there's enormous shock in November 1938 with Kristallnacht and the huge wave of anti-Jewish violence that goes across Germany. And then in March 1939, Hitler invades the rest of Czechoslovakia, annexing it and rendering all of Chamberlain's claims for peace with honour and peace for our time null and void. Chamberlain initially doesn't even appreciate the magnitude of what's happened. He, he thinks that Czechoslovakia has sort of fallen apart internally. There were lots of domestic rows going on between the different minorities in Czechoslovakia, which had preceded the German invasion. They're certainly not spoiling for a fight, but they are then carried along by a wave of panics. The Romanian minister comes and visits him and says that the Germans are about to invade Romania. There are rumours that they're about the Germans are about to invade Switzerland, that they're about to bomb London, that they might invade Poland. And there's a huge desperate scramble at the last moment to weld together an anti-Nazi alliance. It's hoped that this will centre on the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union isn't prepared to play ball and Chamberlain and his colleagues have cold-shouldered Stalin for most of the decade. And so they rest on Poland. They want a two-front war. If they have to fight Germany, they want a two-front war from the beginning. And they think that Poland is the most substantial military power in the East. And so they guarantee Poland, then they guarantee Romania, they guarantee Greece, there's an agreement with Turkey. Suddenly there are deterrence and alliances going out left, right and centre. But it's, they're, not, they're definitely not longing for war. So the, by the summer of 1939, Britain, France, security agreements with Poland. This is it now. This next one will mean war. Why does Hitler keep pushing? Hitler keeps pushing because he doesn't believe that the British and French will actually fight. One of the biggest problems of the Munich Agreement is he thinks that they will continually give in. It's not clear whether he would have curtailed his plans had he been convinced that the British and French would fight for Poland. He was 
determined to see the greater German Reich in his lifetime, and he didn't think he was going to live much longer. And he also saw that the British and French were belatedly closing the arms gap, which he had opened up. This was the moment. So it was boldness on his part, uh, determination to see his program through, but also an unwillingness to believe the British and the French when they said that they were going to fight for Poland. And then in September 1939, he is proved wrong. Is he surprised when Britain and France declare war? Hitler's continually assured by his the completely egregious Joachim von Ribbentrop, his foreign minister and one-time ambassador to London, the most bitter anglophobe you could imagine, continually assured that Britain will not fight. He says again and again and again, and there's a war party within the Nazi hierarchy and there's a peace party and Ribbentrop is leading the war party. And the war party, which Hitler is obviously part of and leading member of the war party, win. When Britain declares war and Britain's ambassador Sir Neville Henderson hands a note to the German foreign ministry and then von Ribbentrop delivers this to Hitler, Hitler, apparently, according to his interpreter, turned to von Ribbentrop and said, what next? In a very angry way, making it clear so the interpreter thought that he was surprised that the British had declared war and was angry with Ribbentrop. So Britain and Germany at war. There's an argument, isn't there, that appeasement bought the British time to rearm and actually it was strategically wise to take those extra couple of years before taking on Germany. Do you buy into that? I don't, actually, and, and for two big reasons. Firstly, it was never made at the time. Chamberlain did not come back from Munich and say, God, that was a close shave. But we've got this agreement. We've, we've probably got a year now where we can get, get ready. He actually comes back and even though he regrets the exuberance of peace for our time, he nevertheless refuses to accelerate British rearmament. Halifax and other cabinet ministers come to him and say, you were very lucky this time. We must increase British rearmament. But Chamberlain says, but I brought back peace. It, so it was not an argument used by contemporaries, even if members of the armed forces were very much aware of the pitiful state that Britain's arms were in. And it's true, we did not have the Spitfire, we did not have the Hurricane, even though they were being ordered, they weren't ready yet. We didn't have radar, all these things which made the difference between victory and defeat in the Battle of Britain. But the breathing space was also used by the Germans, not a, a zero-sum game. They had the same opportunity. And if you look at the figures, it's fairly clear that the Germans out-armed Britain and France, certainly on land, in tanks and munitions, and even in the air, as well as getting this huge trove of munitions. Most of the tanks which invaded France in May 1940 were made by the Czechs and just been taken from the Skoda works. So the breathing space argument I don't think really holds, and not least because the diplomatic situation had become so much worse. The Soviet Union, who, as we know in, in retrospect, and as some contemporaries were saying, ultimately defeated the German army in the Second World War, and without them we would have been stuffed, was an ally of Czechoslovakia, who was an ally of France. The Soviet foreign minister was constantly urging some form of anti-Nazi alliance with the West and was rebuffed, whereas by September 1939, Stalin's made an alliance with Hitler. We're, we're in a diplomatically and strategically worse position in September 1939 than we were a year earlier. Is it weird writing a book that's been used as the ultimate historical metaphor? It gets mobilised and sent into battle every five minutes. You know, appeasing Hitler is used by everyone from environmentalists to people worrying about Putin to people worrying about Iran. What, what is it like launching into that piece of history when you know it's going to be seized on by everybody? Well, I, I don't make any modern comparisons in the book, although a whole book could be written on how 
the wrong lessons have been learned. I mean, my aim was to try and write about it as it happened so that people could try and learn the right lessons. But as you say, he has continuously been used for the wrong reasons, even by people who were there. The most obvious example being Anthony Eaton, foreign secretary in the 1930s, who, when he becomes prime minister, sees another dictator with a moustache acting in a cavalier manner and thinks, well, we know what we're doing here. We're going to get in there before he can do it. And it leads to the most enormous disaster. Or 2003, when Tony Blair and George Bush invade Iraq with another dictator with a moustache. It, it, these are the wrong lessons. Neither Nasser in 1956 nor Saddam Hussein in 2003 posed a regional, let alone a global threat, as did Hitler's Germany. And I would say that the biggest lesson from appeasement, the biggest failure of the appeasers, was not to understand the real nature of the Nazi regime. And that the same could be said of Eden in 1956 or Blair and Bush in 2003. They didn't understand or didn't want to understand the real natures of the Saddam Hussein regime or the Colonel Nasser regime in Egypt. So understanding the real motivations of your opponents and acting legally and alongside allies, would I say, be the major lessons of the period. Listen up, John Bolton. Hope you're listening to this podcast. Um, thank you so much. It's a, it's a huge book and it's, it's a, I think, brilliantly researched. Lots of wonderful examples, lots of wonderful colour from the period. Tim Brewery, the book is called... Appeasing Hitler, Chamberlain, Churchill and the Road to War. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.